about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way, it might be really good. Wow. In a little cafe, just the other side of the border. He was sitting there giving me looks that made my mouth water. It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, released in April 2017, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach accepting a BAFTA for I, Daniel Blake, Martin Scorsese executive producing Abundant Acreage Available, or Jennifer Aniston in The Yellow Birds instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. I really can't understand why there's such a widespread downer on this. As far as I'm concerned, it's even better than the first, and the only hackneyed reference gag in it is using bloody Mr. Blue Sky like everything else. I have plenty more thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, as you'll find out if you go to my website. But meanwhile, joining me to give her thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is journalist Emma Burnell. Emma, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Emma Burnell underscore. And as my little Twitter bio makes clear, I'm never knowingly appropriate. So it's sort of half politics and half dirty jokes. That is the best summation of you I have ever heard. I'll be honest about that. <laughs> well, coming from you, given that we went out for three years. <laughs> OK, well, so before we go any further, Emma, what happens in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2? Kurt Russell is God. And it turns out he's not a very nice God. He's also Andy from Parts and Rec's his dad. So Andy from Parts and Rec is half God. They have to battle to the death. It's a film about fatherhood, really, isn't it? In many ways, I suppose the first film was kind of, you know, the death of the mother was the, the shaping narrative. And very much Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is a film all about fatherhood, I would say. And that's what we're finding out. It's actually a lot lighter than that. But Emma, what did you know about the Guardians of the Galaxy before you saw either film? I had no idea what the Guardians of the Galaxy was. I was really surprised by how funny the first film was when I wasn't expecting it. All of the music stuff, I, I you know, genuinely had no idea who any of these characters were, any of that stuff. I had no backstory for them at all. Still don't, really. <laughs> well, I'm really not surprised by that because they weren't very well-known characters. And for most of them, I think this was the first time they'd ever appeared in spin-off media. But they took off straight away. I mean, I was surprised by how big the first film got, yeah. given that it it wasn't even like a superhero film, like the template that had been set so far. I mean, I know since they've gone into, you know, horror and romantic comedy and things like that, but it was a space film in the middle of a load of superhero films and everyone loved it. I mean, I suppose they're kind of superheroes in a way. I mean, they all have these amazing abilities, but yeah, it, it's much more a kind of space adventure than it is you know your classic by day he's peter parker by night he's spider-man 
kind of a film. I don't know why I did that voice, but I did. Well, yes, they do all have amazing abilities, but they kind of remind me in a sense of Spinal Tap in that <laughs> they are very good at what they do. They just happen for the most part to an extent even including Gamora to be not really not very bright but not focused on their they don't have a handle on life at all any of them they don't seem to have a guiding philosophy I think and most superheroes have a guiding philosophy you know and a guiding purpose whereas these guys just kind of drift around being a bit purposeless and accidentally saving the universe occasionally and we do get that amazing opening scene that kind of sets out all the characters immediately where they're trying to defend the Anulax batteries or as Jaraxxons they are harbulary batteries which is never explained but from this giant kind of multi-tentacled squid thing and you've got Star-Lord and Gamora arguing you know like a couple would in that situation about who is using which weapon you've got Rocket just wants to kill it and steal whatever he can Groot running around dancing to music and just hitting things that get in the way and then Drax says its skin is too hard to cut from the outside I must cut it from the inside and jumps into its mouth yeah. <laughs> That's a fantastic opening scene, despite Mr. Blue Sky, which is the one track I'm not keen on in this film, but we won't have that argument now. But the music's <laughs> a really big thing in it, like it was in the first one, mm-hmm. and it's so well used. My favourite scene in it of all is when they're on the Ravager ship trying to take it back, and Rocket and Yondu and Groot put on Come a Little Bit Closer by Jay and the Americans. And they basically take out the rest of the Ravagers in time to this campy yeah. 60s kind of Tijuana tune. It's done in a very, very knowing way because Rocket says, doesn't he, you know, have you got any of Quill's music? So, you know, they know, you know, they're, they're winking at us whilst doing it. And there's that great bit towards the end of the film where obviously Star-Lord's original tape that his mother had given him is destroyed by his father. You know, that, that's quite a Freudian yeah, turn of well, events. It turns out his father had killed his mother. I don't know how many how much spoilers you want in this but yeah that that was quite a a moment (laughs) yes but then he's given yondu had saved for him it's given to him by kraglim one of the other ravagers a zoom people probably not explain that was microsoft's failed mp3 player of the (laughs) mid-2000s with 300 songs on it which he's visibly excited by and that actually I know you haven't seen Infinity War yet because we have discussed that, but that opens with a record where you're thinking, why on earth is it opening with that? And then you find out it's being played on the Zune. So there is that element in Guardians of the Galaxy where there's other films that do the postmodernism bit in different ways. But this kind of, as you say, winks the camera through the music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the music is very tongue-in-cheek in many ways. And I, in, in some ways, I think that's why Mr. Blue Sky actually probably works, because they know what they're doing with that. Do you know what I mean? So I think I like it more than you, but, you know, you're wrong about things. But even so, even if I didn't like it, I think that the jauntiness of it as used in such a knowing way, I think it works. And also, we might as well bring in at this point that I did mention to you that there is Guardians Inferno, which is a bit of disco silliness they did at the end of the film, where it's basically a disco song with David Hasseltoff singing the plot of the film. <laughs> and they're all dancing in disco gear. And, you know, the fact that they did that is kind of nodding to the audience as well. It- yeah, I mean, yeah, the use of David Hasselhoff in the film is really, really well done and really clever. You know, bless it. 
him. The best thing about the Hoff is his ability to laugh at himself. And also amazing in this is Sylvester Stallone as Stucker Ogord, who was one of the original 60s, very short-lived Guardians of the Galaxy comic, and they all reunite at the end, which we'll come back to. Oh, is that because I, I looked at that little gang and I thought there's either a backstory there I don't know, or they're shadowing the Guardians because they're sort of standing in the same formation. Did you spot who was playing Mainframe, the sort of robot head? No. An uncredited Miley Cyrus. Good Lord. Yeah, and there's another better cameo I'll come back to, which was absolutely astonishing. I wonder if you spotted either of these. I'll tell you what did happen to me when I first watched it, and again when I rewatched it. I spent the first sort of ten minutes going, ooh, I found an actor who looks really like a young Kurt Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sylvester Stallone looks like a present-day Sylvester Stallone. But yeah, I only found out a couple of days ago that was actually written by James Gunn to Stackard's character in the film with David Bowie in mind. Oh. And they got kind of a polite refusal, but obviously he was very ill at that point. Otherwise... Yeah. I think he might have done it. Yeah, Stallone was actually really good, I thought. And that's not something I say very often. I do remember watching Rambo last off my tits once. <laughs> which is really, really the only way to watch Rambo. Not enough acid in the world made me watch Rambo too. <laughs> but everyone's brilliant at this. And I think in particular, somebody who doesn't get enough credit is Karen Gillan as Nebula. Do you, you think you... that's him? I wonder why you said that. <laughs> no, seriously. You would not know if it was her if you didn't know it was her playing that character. Absolutely, yeah. And Absolutely icy, but funny with it as well. Yeah, and she goes on a really interesting emotional sort of arc, doesn't she? So, yeah, a much more built-up part for her than there was in the first film, I suppose. Absolutely. And, yeah, everyone's great. And there are the great scenes with her fighting with Zoe Saldana, which apparently, according to commentary, was based on Spy vs. Spy from Mad Comic, which <laughs> is why they're picking up bigger and bigger kind of broken-off bits of spaceship shooting right. at each other. But all the interactions between characters, I think, are really really believable they've got proper relationships with each other and they flesh out people like you know rocket has some sensitivity drax's backstory isn't just funny it's quite tragic and even mantis who comes in kind of as a very naive head in the clouds character now she has lines about herself like i'm a flea with a purpose now she has that streak of almost self-loathing going through i think the dynamics are what really makes this film because everything is believable including the kind of romantic that Star-Lord and Gamora are trying to deny is happening. Mm, it's so mm. well played out, that. Yeah, and, and it's nice and genteel and it's not going to get in the kids' way of watching the, the film, do you know what I mean? Because sometimes if you're a kid and you're watching a space movie and they all start kissing, it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you someone I did want to mention is Sean Gunn as Kraglin, who A, I think is brilliant, but it's so bizarre for me because for me, he's just that weird guy from Gilmore Girls. And he's so recognisable as that weird guy from Gilmore Girls that it's you're kind of like, but he's also a space punk. How is that happening? <laughs> he is an unsung star of it. And he features so heavily in one of the best scenes, which, again, Karen Gillan is brilliant in. But it's the when Taserface, the new leader of the Ravagers, is trying to torture <laughs> Rocket in Yondu. And Rocket is just laughing his head off at the main Taserface. And what I really loved about that scene was I found out all the other Ravagers aren't necessarily 
primarily actors. They're people that James Gunn knew. Sort of people like artists. And mm-hmm. there's my favourite is the one with the kind of really long hair that shaved around the sides just screams hysterically throughout it. It's a <laughs> punk singer called Jimmy Yorin. Okay. And the reason he picked them all was he thought actors would make it too mannered, whereas they would seem like unhinged screaming space pirates. <laughs> and he's right. And the switch between them, revelling in violence and laughing at their captain's name, yeah, is yeah, superb. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought Yondu, again, I think was absolutely amazing. But I also couldn't see another ending for him. You know, once he'd had his, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where he gets forgiveness and all that arc, basically. Yeah, there wasn't another place you could really take that character. Yeah, and the whole I'm your real dad thing was really sweet. But again, there was no way to do that and have him live. It's a shame because... I liked the character and I would have liked to have seen him in further movies. I'm wondering if you noticed the cameos. Well, one of them, I'm sure you won't spot it, by two people from one of your favourite TV shows. I know Seth Green was Howard the Duck. Well, you're on the right lines. Did you notice who Howard's date was? No. It was Molly Quinn, Alexis, Castle's daughter from Castle. Ah! And as well as that, there was a deleted subplot with Nathan Fillion playing Wonder Man, who's one of the real mysterious non-appearing characters from the Marvel, well, comics universe so far. But some... It takes too long to explain who Wonder Man is and why this has happened, but in the background of some scenes, apparently you can still just make out film posters with Simon Williams' Wonder Man playing Tony Stark and a couple of other characters in biopics. So technically, it's almost a Castle spin-off. Given the ridiculous things that happened to Castle, I wonder if that's actually him, if it's canonical. <laughs> He'd gone into space and he lost Alexis and you gone on a date with a duck? And when you said my favourite show, I was thinking of Buffy, which I'm currently doing a big rewatch <laughs> of. And Nathan Fillion and Seth Green are both in that. So, you know. They're yeah, both, true. Yeah. Clearly, we're all on the same page. And there's lots of incredibly funny bits in it as well that still make me... I mean, I compare it to something like... I suppose Faulty Towers were all Monty Python, where you know what's coming, but mm. it's the fact you know what's coming that makes you laugh every time. There's things like, want to buy some batteries, and I sense romantic sexual love for her there must be some kind of peaceful resolution to this or even the violent one where i'm standing over there it's also well timed and yeah, even yeah. the visual stuff as well it's a much funnier film than i think most people would expect the two guardians films and the ant-man films are some of the best comedy films of the past decade really yeah i mean i just remember being so surprised when i saw the first one did i see that with you i know i saw this one with you did i see the first you one saw with both you? of them with me and facebook on this day recently reminded me we saw the first one after we've been to see an Ionesco play set oh. in a real restaurant, a kind of immersive <laughs> version of it. So that was a little bit of a contrast, really. Yeah, you know, high culture, low culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's our life. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and I just, because I had no no notion of what it was. So I had loads of preconceptions that were completely wrong. So it was really cool to laugh as much as I did and, and to be surprised by it as much as I was. So obviously when I went to see this one, I kind of knew what the flavour was going to be. It was really just very, very enjoyable. I mean, I get a little hacked off because I'm so done with 20, 30 minute long CGI sequences. Yeah, I just find it so boring. There's no tension to it because I know that's just computer generated and it's not interesting to me. But this, I feel, didn't do too much. I mean, it it did a lot of it, but it undercut it with humour most of the way through. Getting down and dirty with a Procyon loader. Got 
no people skills, but he's good with motor. That weird thing by his side, an infantilized sequoia. The two of them who walk by, people say, oh boy. They ask me why I'm bringing a baby into battle. That's really irresponsible and getting them rattled. I said, give me a break. Get off of my back, damn it. I didn't learn parenting. My daddy was a planet. When I was watching this, I had kind of vague memories of the storyline. You know that my memory is absolutely useless. But I was kind of watching it and I was like, well, I know he goes bad. And then I remember thinking, of course he goes bad. His name's Ego. Like, like, of course he's going to end up as an awful, awful person. Oh, God. (laughs) But yeah, no, I thought um, Kurt Russell was really good. I mean, he's got a look of sort of old Jesus about it anyway. But coming back to my original point, this film was a real exploration of that sort of fatherhood dynamic. And, you know, Yondu was a bad person, but a good father. Kurt Russell was a god, but a terrible father. And then even with the relationship between Drax and the strange caterpillar woman. Yeah, there was an element of sort of fatherhood in that as well. You know, he loved her, but he didn't love her like that. And he obviously is searching for a replacement because his daughter was killed. And you see him kind of looking over this, you know, mantis in a fatherly way. And of course, the film ends with him, like, basically hugging Groot like a baby. Who Groot has refused to acknowledge him throughout the film. So that is quite... I mean, there are a lot of things in... Because there's that amazing climax where they're trying to stop Ego. And Mm. it goes on and on. And will Groot remember to press the right button to blow up the centre of the planet? And and also, we've not mentioned the Sovereign, who are the secondary antagonists in it, who I think Yondu calls them some gold dames with high opinions of themselves. (laughs) Who are incredibly snooty, but seem to be obsessed with 80s video games because they pilot remote ships that make sort of galaxians noises there is a lot of 80s video game stuff in this isn't there because at one point he's fighting when i say he i mean star lord is fighting his dad and he turns into pac-man yes <laughs> which was kind of bizarre but i mean he had pre-shadowed it because he said he was going to build a statue of pac-man and there's also in retaliation he turns into david hasselhoff or rather zardu hasselfrau as gamora calls him <laughs> in that beautiful scene about he had a magic boat you told me that story and i loved it and then they start arguing about cheers even though she's never seen cheers she's never seen cheers but she does the arguing anyway yeah <laughs> it's funny that they always go for cheers in america whereas here we would almost certainly have used moonlighting as the example of that you know Moonlighting was the classic, they fucked it up by getting them together. But I don't think they at all fucked it up by getting those two together in this. No, because they did it slowly, didn't they? It was a, yeah, and again, I mean, the question would be, what happens in film three? Well, there is in between that, I'm going to say nothing, because A, no spoilers for everything else, and B, I know you've not seen them yet, but it becomes a very serious major plot point in Infinity War and Endgame. All I will say is, 
things stop being funny for the Guardians all of a sudden. And does he rock it with his head in his hands for quite a few scenes? It's quite a moment, actually. Mm, I bet. Well, Rocket has an interesting arc in this, doesn't he? Because he, like, is really worried that he's going to lose his friends, and that's why he keeps pushing people away. And then it turns out that he can't lose his friends because they're his friends. And, you know, if you're a real friend, you can't be lost, if you see what I mean. And again, you know, there are... Maybe it's not just dads. Maybe what this film is about is male emotion, if I want to get high-minded about it, because there are various explorations of non-toxic male behaviour. Do you know what I mean? Rocket behaves like that because he doesn't know how to process his emotions properly. Drax, obviously lives everything on the surface because he cannot do metaphor but you do see him being this that metaphorical father figure you know he is someone who's searching for something he's lost you know peter is dealing with his problematic father and his feelings for his dead mother i mean it is interesting isn't it you know although these are basically knockabout good time films there is quite a lot in there in terms of you know the depth of it. Well, you've just made me think of something that I'd never thought of before, which is in the first film, the one person in the Nova Corps who sides with them is Ronan Day. And a lot is made of him being a father and protecting his daughter. Right. And he's the one who sides with the Guardians. I mean, that thematically, that ties in as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can look at this film on a just, oh my God, that's hilarious, isn't Groot cute kind of a level. But I think there is, you know, good writing can do both. And I think this is good writing. And I don't know anything about whether any of this stuff is explored through the comics, because I know that graphic novels and comics do a lot more than people think in terms of this kind of thinking. They really do. And there is a lot of this, but there's also a lot more silliness as well. I mean, one character who's not made it into the films is they took a decision very early on that with everything else going on, they couldn't have an animal actor as well. So Mm. Cosmo the space dog just has cameos here and there and does appear prominently end credits to this which is hilarious just this massive dog in a space helmet just must have been confusing anyone who was watching the heroic portraits of the rest of them (laughs) and it's interesting that now after years of her being you know a secondary character somebody who came in out of other comics nebula has now got her own series oh really first ever solo comic series and it's directly kind of informed by the films. They've even modified their appearance slightly to match the Karen Gillan version. You know, obviously, that is exploring a lot of her issues. You know, there is the fact that she did just want a sister and she had a combatant. They are still picking those things up even now, which is great, really. Again, I think it's a really valuable conversation to have about male emotion because I think I don't think we talk about it nearly enough. And, you know, there's such a limited scope to what we think masculinity is. And to see people up on screen, there are lots of you know, real male archetypes actually subvert those notions. Really interesting. Drax in particular, you know, I mean, he, Dave Bautista is a former wrestler. You know, he, he looks like a former wrestler. Well, he looks like a current wrestler, to be honest. And, you know, to see him be this really kind of sweet, gentle character. I mean, not when he's fighting, but the rest of the time. And I think that's really important. And you you need people like that and people who subvert our notions of masculinity are actually really, really important because our notions of masculinity are so bad for us. 
both for women and for men. Well, it's interesting they did that the most in the funniest films. These and the Ant-Man films really do question. It's the whole thing of the reluctant hero. Again, there's an element of not quite dysfunctional fatherhood, but, you know, being a single father in Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. So it is something they're weirdly using humour to explore, which is possibly in itself an interesting psychological study. Well, just before we come on to the post credit scenes, which I have a feeling I'm going to have to explain most of them to you. Yeah, I didn't really get what was going on there. <laughs> well, I just wanted to highlight something that I only spotted about the third time I saw this, which is in the brilliant sequence where Yondu and Rocket are trying to enlist Groot to get them out of a jail cell, and he keeps bringing them the wrong objects, which has that amazing bit about, tell me you guys have a fridge somewhere with a bunch of severed human toe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shakes his head. <laughs> When he brings him the fake eye, that reappears in another film. Oh. And it's not back reference to coming from there, but again, it's setting up an important thing that happens later on. But let's just go through the post credit scenes in order. There's, I'm fairly sure I'll have to explain Cracklin trying out Yondu's arrow and it accidentally stabbing Drax in the neck. Yeah, like, is Drax alive? <laughs> He's saying, ah, a lot, so I assume yeah. so. Then there's the original Guardians assembling to honour Yondu. Yeah. And apparently yeah. the intention is to reuse them at some point. Right. So you were right to spot it was going somewhere. Well, A, it was Sylvester Stallone. So you kind of think, well, he could carry a movie on his own. What are they going to do with that? But also, there was just that, the, the way they were stood looked like a movie poster. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And also some very big names were just a cameo, because there was Ving Rhames, Michelle Yeoh, Miley Cyrus, as we've said. Yeah. They obviously weren't just... paying them quite a lot of money just to come up and do two seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then after that, we get the bit with the teenage group playing that handheld arcade game in his room and Peter yeah. getting very annoyed with him. Which again, is a fatherhood kind of fatherhood thing. thing. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is where we have to start explaining things. We see Ayesha, the leader of the Sovereign, creating another Sovereign, looking very exhausted and saying she will call him Adam. Oh. Adam Warlock is one of the most significant space characters in Marvel. Oh. Who They've held back so far, I think because he could have ended some things that were happening in the overall story arc just like that. Right, that right. I think I think that's why people like Wonder Man haven't appeared and Captain Marvel didn't appear till the very end. Yeah, yeah. But that caused a bit of confusion, actually, because people thought that he was going to turn up in the, the original Infinity War and Infinity Gauntlet comics. He was a major character in. And because right. Infinity War was about to come out, people thought, ooh, Adam Warlock's going to be in that. They're like, no, we're setting him up for the third Guardians films. <laughs> <laughs> we do also get in the end credits you know when they're all dancing to Guardians Inferno as the credits are going up yeah yeah did you spot someone you didn't recognise yes that's Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster another space character who turns up immediately afterwards in Thor Ragnarok is he Grandmaster Flash well from his dancing style he might well be but yeah they just thought it was funny to put that in there and confuse people and then have him in the next film and then there's that really bizarre end scene which is Stan Lee with a bunch of the Watchers who were again space characters who observe everything kind of recounting all these past cameos as though he is one of the Watchers heralds 
being sent through different roles because he, he had a cameo in every film up to and including Captain Marvel which sadly which is the last one then they digitally put him in later ones right. I don't know if you've seen Captain Marvel but he's reading the script yeah. for Rats on his way to film this scene in it oh but, I haven't seen Captain Marvel but I knew that how bizarre there is the implication there that Stan Lee is a character that blew my mind a bit of a and then they get Stan bored and they just leave Stan him there Stan Lee with air quotes and yeah the last thing in the whole film is him just being abandoned on a planet yeah I mean I was kind of like I don't really get what's going on here like when he was talking to them earlier he was like and then I was a male guy a FedEx guy so yeah I kind of got that he was doing that but I like him being abandoned on the planet and then boring people to death it all felt a bit weird I mean coming back again to this fatherhood you know Stan Lee is the father of you know this universe isn't he pretty much yeah so maybe that again is the metaphor you know people have to grow up and leave well it's all about fatherhood which ironically ties in with the one thing I've got left to ask which is Emma now I feel bad posing this question because I kind of feel that it's not actually a question but if you had a literal brain the size of a planet what would you use it for uh solve coronavirus <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to say you already had one and your tweets reflected that. I think we both know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Does your category. Well, I've got a bigger brain than Smudge. That's, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. Emma, thank you and Excelsior. Thank you. In these times of hardship, just remember, we are... If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.